This is The Kicker, a podcast about journalism and media from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Pete Turner. This week, I'm joined by retired Marine Sergeant Thomas Brennan and veteran conflict photographer Finbar O'Reilly, who have written a joint memoir about their time in Afghanistan and their struggles to deal with what they experienced there. O'Reilly and Brennan met in 2010 when O'Reilly embedded with Brennan's unit in Afghanistan. Days after he arrived, Brennan was wounded by a rocket-propelled grenade, leaving him with a traumatic brain injury and PTSD. Shooting Ghost tells the story of combat, its aftermath, and a friendship born of shared experiences. Thomas and Finbar, thanks so much for being here. I'm wary of asking authors this question of why did you write your book, but in the case of Shooting Ghosts, Finbar, is there a message you wanted readers to take away about the way we cover combat and perhaps more importantly, its aftermath? Well, I think we've, we've had a lot of coverage of, of the wars over the years, but there's been less coverage of what happens after them and as, as troops come home. And, and, you know, after 15 years of war, we've got a couple of million service members who've come back and many journalists who have covered these wars. So while the book looks at what happens in Iraq and what happens in our Afghanistan with Thomas and his, his roles in both of those conflicts, and my my work covering Afghanistan, it it really is looking at what happens on the home front, you know, as well, and and how we kind of grapple with our experiences that that took place at war, and what those mean to us, and how we try to carve a sense of purpose and and meaning back in the civilian life for Thomas after he leaves the military, and and for me after I stop working on the front lines, and so it's about creating a new sense of identity, how we relate to our families and our our loved ones. And um, and how we kind of move through trauma to to find new new lives away from war. And Thomas, in the book, you talk about how your writing after you came back from Afghanistan, you would hear from current or current military members or veterans about the impact it had on them. Do you look at your audience primarily as veterans or active duty military? When I write, I. I'm just as honest and as raw as I can be. Um, I don't write with a particular audience in, in mind. Um, I, I believe that if I'm, I'm truthful and I reveal how I've been impacted, that it'll resonate with at least one reader. War writing for veterans by veterans does a disservice uh, when it comes to bridging the military and civilian divide. So writing for the general public uh, it, it is definitely uh, my approach when I put pen to paper, and so, and certainly the the you know the idea of the book is is to kind of uh, explain and yeah as as Thomas says bridging this military civilian divide and and by having it as two narratives me as the the civilian journalist Thomas as as the marine in a way I I kind of act as the liaison uh, between the civilian world. Uh, who's with the military, you know, in, in the military environment with him. So I get to sort of uh, take the readers to, to into his world, and then he reveals it to us through our relationship. And, um, and you know, the idea is for, for people to be able to relate to that on a level that might be difficult if it's just Thomas writing for, for, for members of the military. Yeah, you mentioned this structure of the book as alternating chapters between civilian journalist Finbar and Marine Thomas. And I'm interested in how that partnership and friendship came to be. 
Finbar, when you show up in Afghanistan, what's your strategy as a journalist to gain the trust of these Marines that you're going to be serving with? Yeah, that for you know for for a journalist who's coming from you know outside the military, I I turn up at this remote combat outpost where these hardened Marines are coming off battle operations, and uh, and there's this sort of stranger in their midst, and and really it's you know there's there's a look of suspicion. What's that guy doing here? What does he want? What are his motives? Is he going to be you know a risk to us if we take him out on patrol? So I I have to find ways to to earn their trust because this is a very closed, tight-knit group. And so one of the things that I'd learned from previous embeds is bring in tobacco, I'd give them cigarettes, I'd give them chewing tobacco and that he kind of- He bribed us. Yeah, bribery works. <laughs> and um, and then also when we go out on patrols, I have to not be a liability. You know, this is a hostile Taliban-controlled area and they have things that they need to watch out for on their patrols, the threat of roadside bombs, the threat of ambush, all of which were things that, you know, um, affected those those patrols while I was there. And so I have to just be able to do my job without getting in their way. But they don't know whether I can do that until we actually step out. Um, so it, it is a process that, that can take a little time. And Thomas, as a veteran and now a journalist, what would you say to combat reporters who are going into these situations, uh, coming from your perspective of someone who's been on both sides of it, what should journalists be thinking about? What can they do to make their jobs and your job easier? What you do over the course of your reporting, regardless of how you're doing it, can have very life or death consequences for for the the men and women in uniform that you might be walking beside. Um, one of the reasons why it, it it's initially difficult to trust journalists is because we'd never seen Finn on patrol before. Um, we we you know you take one wrong step in Afghanistan and and you know you're missing your legs. And then it, that, that's a lot of paperwork for us to do for a journalist, uh, which, which I joke about in the book. Um, but it's also, like, that's a big risk to the Marines that are, that are on the patrol. Um, oftentimes, uh, you know, if, if Finn were to have stepped on an improvised explosive device, uh, we would have had at least one or two Marines um, that likely would have been wounded as well. And, and it, 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 there's a real weight to, to going out on like you you can really do a lot of damage to a lot of lives if if your degree of attention to detail isn't there uh, while you're reporting in conflict zones. You talk about building trust between journalists and Marines. This book is not just about war and trauma. It's also about friendship. So I'm interested in how your friendship developed. Initially, there's a lot of distrust, and I think when I first pitched up, he wanted to you know. To throw me off the nearby cliff and or maybe if I was a liability he, he, as he mentions in the book he was going to make sure I accidentally on purpose got shot in the foot um, <laughs> but you know coming under fire together pretty much the day after we met um, when bullets are flying you you kind of and and everyone comes out okay afterwards it it is a, a unifying experience and on top of that, when he got injured a week or so later, um, and I was there, that explosion of the grenade that knocked him out, caused his brain injury, um, that, that really kind of welded our friendship in a way that carried forward over the years. And as he, he contacted me with some, with some thoughts, some questions, and a beginning of a correspondence uh, while he was trying to struggle with his, his experiences, 
it just built up gradually, and there's a, there was a back and forth that that took place there, wasn't there? Yeah, obviously there was. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that I mean yes, bullets do have a way of uh, speeding up a bond that is formed in in friendship. I see it now as a journalist, where it becomes very easy to look at an interview with somebody or time that you've spent with a source as they gave me great quotes, um, they gave me great this. Like, no, they gave you a, a, a conversation where they truly trusted you with some of their like most intimate secrets. Finn treated us like people, not like quotes, and he was willing to put the effort in to build the relationship. Um, he wasn't just flying in and dropping in to, to get a few quotes um, and, then, and then disappear. Um, I mean, obviously, the project that he was working on was really like a fi- had a five-year plan. Uh, so, <laughs> but it, 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 I mean, it didn't though. That's the thing. I went there thinking yeah. this would, this could be an interesting place to get close to some guys, get some good pictures, get some good stories, get to know them, and that's what happened. And when I left there after the, you know a couple of weeks and, and Thomas getting injured, I felt like, wow, I, I want to go back. I want to see how those guys are doing at the end of their deployment because this was pretty much at the beginning of their deployment. So I went back several months later to see how they were doing, what the area of operations where they were, had, how it had evolved or changed or become safer or less safe. And going back a second time, just built on on that relationship from before. And um, and it was less kinetic. There was less fighting and more time to talk, more time to get to know each other. And I'd say that, that deepened things further. And that that was just a, a continuum that that carried on once we once we came home and and the conversation evolved into well, well now what you know what do I do now that I'm back that I'm trying to make sense of all this that I'm leaving the Marine Corps and I happened to be going to the U S to to do a sabbatical year so we, we you know we got in touch we spent time with Thomas's family up near Boston and we just got to know each other and and the conversation rolled and and little by little. We we had this weird experience in Afghanistan that I hadn't had with anybody else, and he'd had with his Marines, but not with somebody who was outside. And I think maybe it was a little easier for him to talk with me about some of those things than than with your fellow Marines. I don't know what what was it that that made you want to open up to me. Um, I, active listening, I, I think, was the. I mean, it was. Uh, I wasn't. I wasn't just a story. Um, that that's that's really why like the trust built um i think it's i think it's easy to say that you know you miss war because of getting shot at and the adrenaline um but i think one thing that really had a lot to do with why um we were able to get to know each other uh, so quickly was the 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 fireplace or the fire pit that we had in in afghanistan um at night we'd all take off our flak jackets and just joke around and, and, and talk. And I mean, sometimes Finn would just sit there and be quiet and listen and be the fly on the wall and get to know the guys just by listening. Um, other times he would, he would reveal parts of himself on like where he grew up and, and, you know, we all gave him crap about him being Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so it, 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 when I, when I say I miss war, um, I miss, I miss those dinners. Um, I, I, I miss joking around with my interpreter, um, you know, my Marines, like, and now, like, we all joke around that, that Finn's an honorary Marine. Um, I mean, he survived the firefight, uh, and, and, and really it, he, he put, he was willing to put down the camera and, and help us when, when the medical evacuation needed to take place. Like, I don't remember, um, him helping me 
like walk back and, and carrying me by the arm when I was vomiting and stuff. Um, but that's like I'd never seen a, a journalist being willing to kind of sacrifice themselves like that and, and, and stop. Um, like he was willing to, to stop doing his job and do like the humane thing, um, which I know is something that he really like grappled with um, later on in the book with some of the things that, that he'd seen and, and not done. Um, during his embeds in Africa and other places. Yeah, there goes there goes journalistic objectivity right out the window yeah. when when stuff goes sideways. <laughs> but um, you know, it was uh, I think also because I was a bit older too. So I and I had been in places and, and, and done things that you know we could we could talk about that maybe was a little different than the younger guys that you were with. You know, a lot of the Marines in his squad had the only place they'd ever been overseas was Afghanistan, and some of them were too young to drink. Whereas you know, I'd spent 15 years working in, in Middle East and Africa, so we could just bounce ideas around and, and conversation just flowed, and, and there was a level of trust there that allowed us to, to build up to, to the writing of this book and, and helping each other through some, some very difficult times, and that's, that's ultimately what the book is about. It's, it's, yes, it's about war, it's about recovery, but the importance of friendship in that process, and that applies to everybody in life. You, know, you need to be able to, to turn to those who you trust and to those who you can count on when things aren't going well to get you through them. Thomas, the book ends before you founded the Warhorse uh, nonprofit newsroom. What drew you, after your service ended, to journalism in the first place? Like the the, the year that I decided that writing was what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, that there was some statistic that came. It was like the top, the worst one hundred <laughs> jobs or something like that, and like infantryman was number five, the five worst job like in the world that you can do. And, and journalist was, was number three. Um, so one could say that I'm just a stickler for punishment and, and, and I like to hurt myself. <laughs> um, so there was, the, there was that element, but it really, it's the, the public service aspect of it, uh, that, that, that resonates with me. Um, it all goes back to really why I, I started writing for the New York Times at War blog was because I wanted to help other veterans. I wanted to help um, make sure that the, the you know, stories that I believe need to be told rise to the top. And, and the stories that, that I want to tell and the stories that I believe the warhorse should be telling, um, it, it, it's difficult. Uh, I, w- I would argue almost nearly impossible for those to exist at, at the military reporting outlets that currently, uh, that currently operate within the space. Um, where everybody's chasing after breaking news uh, and political commentary. You know, it's a deliberate effort on our part to completely avoid those two topics. We want long-form investigations. We want multimedia uh, um, like enterprise packages. Uh, we, we don't want the fluff crap that, <laughs> that, that most places seem to, to care most about right now. It, it, it's not about, uh, I mean, clicks are important, but um, the impact that can come from your reporting is what's more important. You mentioned the current coverage that exists about whether it's Veterans Affairs or the war in Afghanistan, which is our longest conflict in American history. But it's a topic that's rare to see on network evening news or even the front page of national newspapers. What should newsroom leaders who make these decisions about the things that get play be thinking about uh, as they approach combat coverage and its aftermath? Well, uh, you know, as you said, Afghanistan is now the longest war in U.S. history, and there has, over the past 15 years, been extensive coverage of that conflict and of the Iraq conflict, and the conflict in Iraq is still dominating the news coverage. So it's not like there's there's a dearth of, of actual coverage and, or a lack of reporters um, 
doing these jobs or lack of photographers covering these um, stories. But certainly, and, and also, you know, the, the combat operations and, in terms of U.S. involvement has dropped dramatically mm-hmm. since the, the peak of the fighting and, and the invasion. So, so inevitably, there's going to be a slight, you know, or a large trail-off of, of the kind of coverage that we would have once seen from those places. But that's, I think, where um, the reporting on the after-war is important, and that's a lot of what Thomas is doing with the war horse and what, you know, what... What we see in a lot of the coverage of veterans as well is that the post-traumatic stress, the traumatic brain injuries, and the residual um, injuries from these conflicts. So there, there is a lot of good reporting that is being done. But I think with the war horse, Thomas managed to find a niche that, that really has opened up for deep dive investigative work like the Marines United nude photo sharing scandal, which you know, is a massive, massive story that he and his team at the war horse broke. So, you know, it's it's about finding a space within and, and an area within the current existing news coverage to to just prize open things that he as a as a, a member of the, the Marine Corps at one point will see that maybe um, civilian journalists such as myself might not have had access to. Yeah. And and, and really there's like the void that the warhorse fills is that there's um, no real central location for deep dive journalism uh, surrounding you know DOD and VA. Um, there are journalists all over at multiple news organizations that are doing incredible work. Um, it, it, we we are not trying to build our nonprofit newsroom as competition. Uh, we don't want to be viewed as competition. We want to be complementary. Um, we you know we want to form strategic partnerships with other newsrooms that may not have. Uh, the, the the resources for military reporting units. So. I want to read a section towards the end of the book, Finbar. It's from one of your chapters. You quote former New York Times war correspondent Chris Hedges, who writes, war journalists, like all who have prolonged exposure to violence, come home emotionally maimed and often broken. And yet a news culture in denial has pretended that war journalists are immune from trauma. What can news organizations do to better support those that they send to war? And what can journalists themselves do both in preparation and after they've been in conflict. So the interesting thing for me is is that while Thomas was grappling with the sort of Byzantine bureaucracy of the Veterans Affairs uh, for his mental health care uh, after leaving the military, I was still working for a global news agency, Reuters, and I had access to pretty good health care and mental health coverage if I wanted it. But the thing is, as you read from that quote, there's this macho culture, culture like there is in the military among journalists generally, but especially among uh, conflict journalists who, who do this kind of work. And like in the military, we don't want to admit any perceived weakness in terms of uh, saying I'm not feeling right or, I'm, you know, it's very difficult often for us to talk about these things. And that that the book that we quote there from Chris Hedges was written, you know, 15, 20 years ago now. So there has been a, an evolution since then where there's a bit more openness uh, among news agencies to, to look after their staff. Um, there can always be more done so that journalists don't feel like if they turn down an assignment, that will affect their career. Or if they come out as having, you know, serious mental health issues, that'll, that'll have a detrimental effect, either for getting the next assignment or in a, in a longer term sense. But there, there has been a shift, and I think what it comes down to now is for for journalists to accept, and I was unwilling to do this myself for a long time, that that we, we are not immune to this stuff. And if we weren't feeling troubled a lot of the time, that that would be a problem because some of the things that we're exposed to are, are pretty pretty grim and pretty 
um, traumatizing. So I think we just have to acknowledge that it's it's a normal thing to have uh, an emotional or psychological reaction to the stories that we're covering. And to be willing to talk about it with our peers and to say that we're having a problem and then to approach our, our bosses and managers need to understand that they they have to be able to handle their staff and mental health needs as they would if they were injured uh, covering one of these things, physically injured, I mean, like if they were shot or wounded, they would take time off, they would get the necessary care that they needed and they wouldn't, you know, feel, you know, the journalists wouldn't feel bad in asking for that. But um, but it, But it is sometimes difficult for journalists to really just say, I need help when it comes to this stuff. The book is Shooting Ghosts by Thomas Brennan and Finbar O'Reilly. Thank you guys for being here to talk about it with us. Thank you for having Thank us. You. Thank you for having us. We're sponsored this week by CJR and the slate of really cool events that we're going to be hosting this fall. First up is an opportunity to get out and hear from very smart journalists and CJR's own editors in Charlottesville, Virginia. It's taking place next Monday, September 18th, and the topic will be how journalists cover race and racism in the news. It's hosted by our editor-in-chief, Kyle Pope, and our U.S. project editor, Brendan Fitzgerald. And there's also a great slate of panelists, including Jamel Bowie, Jenna Wortham, and several others. We'll have a live stream of the event up on our website, but if you're in the Charlottesville area, you can check out cjr.org events to see this and all of the other cool panels that we'll have this fall. One big topic we've been talking a lot about in the CJR offices this week is social media and how journalists use it. I'm joined for this conversation by CJR Delacorte Fellows Meg Dalton and Karen K. Ho. Thanks, guys, for being here. Thanks for having us again, Pete. Always excited to be here. (laughs) All right. So we're going to start by working backwards a little bit. On Wednesday afternoon, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Donald Trump's press secretary, was asked about a set of tweets by ESPN SportsCenter anchor Jamel Hill. Hill had responded to someone on Twitter and called Donald Trump a white supremacist who has surrounded himself with other white supremacists. She continued on with a condemnation of Trump and his policies, especially as they relate to race. In response to this, Sarah Huckabee Sanders made a really outrageous statement. I'm not sure if he's aware, but I think that's one of the more outrageous comments that anyone could make, uh, and certainly something that I think is a fireable offense by ESPN. I think we're all in agreement that the White House should not be calling from the podium for the firing of journalists, but this is a complex issue. So what did you guys think in hearing Sanders' comments and following the story as it's gone along this week? It didn't surprise me at all because there's a history of this kind of behavior with this administration in regards to how they've treated journalists, particularly black journalists of color and women within the case of April Ryan. You know, she was singled out for her questions and her professionalism. It is her job to call it this administration. They're, they weren't treated the same way. And it's it's always going to be interesting in terms of this. There's a lot of stuff going around in this administration, but we have to remember that this isn't the first time something like this has happened. Right. And it's not the first time that someone in journalism has made allusions to white supremacy and the Trump administration. I mean, Ta-Nehisi Coates just wrote a big piece for The Atlantic about it. Both The New Yorker and The Economist had covers in August featuring Trump with a KKK hood. Uh, so this idea of race in the Trump administration is not something that should come as a surprise. Yeah. And it's it's also just bizarre that she was the first one that merited a response from the White House. Like, even though this has been something that has been said by many journalists, by in many different mediums and 
But she was she as a black woman was the one that was singled out. And I think another interesting part of this is how ESPN responded. They did not suspend her. They said they had spoken with Hill and she understood the tweets were inappropriate. We should note that she hasn't taken down those tweets, but on Wednesday night she did issue a statement saying that she regretted putting ESPN in a difficult position. It was not an apology for the content of those tweets. And that brings us to a second thread to this story, which is what journalists should be able to say on social media and how that plays into their larger responsibility as reporters. And I mean, that's something that's, you know, not isolated just to ESPN, right? There is a whole discussion this week with Politico and how it's been uh, effectively discarding any applicants who post things that are, quote, toxic on social media. Yeah, Karen, you've been following this story, I know, pretty closely. Can you catch us up on what's going on? So Eric Wemple of The Washington Post attended a social media seminar led by the managing editor of Politico, uh, Sudeep Reddy. And what Wemple wrote was that Politico has effectively identified journalists who have applied or been referred to the company and said, we will not consider them for uh, positions at the company or whether it be on a freelance contract basis, basically for uh, toxic or partisan tweets because the Politico as an institution is very adamant about the fact that they want to be focusing on the politics and the policy, and they do not want reporters to have their fact-based reporting and work be uh, distracted by, or, you know, the people that they're talking to have them be distracted by any sort of uh, idea that they are clearly biased or they have a sort of activist stance. There was a lot of discussion of it online like extensive amount of discussion among journalists online, especially journalists of color. Uh, There was a serious concern uh, regarding a particular line that Wemple had written about regarding white supremacy and attacks on journalists, which quite honestly this week was a huge issue. And um, that's basically it. It, It's going to keep going. It's going to be something that people are going to continue talking about. Well, and it's hard to find where that line is because I do sympathize on some level with editors and kind of publications writ large who say, If you're out on Twitter or Facebook attacking an administration that you are also responsible to cover, people will take your reporting with a grain of salt, even if you in your head are able to separate my objective reporting from my personal comments on social media. So I think finding where that line is, is something that's difficult. Um, You know, Julia Ioffe was fired as a contributor from Politico after she tweeted something implying that Donald Trump uh, was committing incest with his daughter, Ivanka. Um, This was back in December. So that might be where the line, that might be over the line. Um, But I do think there's this issue, especially when it comes to journalists speaking out about identity, uh, about whether that's racial identity or sexual orientation or citizenship. Um, Obviously, immigration is in the news. I just wonder if when newsrooms are making these type of pronouncements about what their journalists can write? Are they asking journalists to check their identity at the door? I think the problem right now is that the people with the least amount to lose are are the ones who already have the most advantages. And so newsrooms really have to think about if you're saying to a young journalist who's an immigrant, who is queer, who is a visible person of color, who is not white passing, that they need to be objective, they have to fight much more to talk about much less, and they are going to have to self-censor, whether it be online or in their work, much more than a straight white male who has been in the newsroom for 20 years. 
Yeah, and, and Jean Denby had a really good point on, on the Twitters, as they say, um, which is that objectivity is not real. And the more that we try to claim that it is, the more the the greater risk there is for increasingly less diverse newsrooms. Yeah, and Karen, as you say, this is something with the importance of social media to journalists getting their stories out, building their brand, interacting with followers and fellow journalists that is not going away. Shifting gears for our final segment, we feel like we're often talking about either depressing or serious news in here. So we wanted to end this week's podcast by picking up some of our fun stories from the news, because in the midst of all of these serious policy discussions and coverage of natural disasters, we should remember that every now and then the internet gives us something fun and the news gives us something to laugh about. So Meg, what was your story this week that you loved? I've been really into this Kid Rock story from Detroit and how <laughs> he basically banned the Detroit Free Press from from covering his concert because of a a past editorial, not even a news story that they that his manager claimed was biased and and inaccurate. So Meg's fun story is about <laughs> more press restrictions. Press restrictions, but from Kid Rock. Well, when he's like, you can't really take seriously because his name is Kid Rock. Yeah. Well, when he is the junior senator from Michigan, maybe we'll have to take it a little more seriously. Karen, what was your favorite story? I think bodegas, the idea that you can take a name of something so beloved that people literally interact with on an everyday basis and then take an iconic image that people associate with that. Bodega cats. The cats, you know, I think... This was, wait, to, to back up, this is two Google employees that are starting essentially a vending machine called Bodega? I think the best summary I saw was uh, it's they are revolutionizing mini bars. They're trying to put them in gyms and apartment buildings. They're supposed to be stocked with a variety of, you know, items that you can pick up so that you don't have to uh, go to a vending machine. I don't know. It was... Uh, it so you, I don't, it's just, it's so stupid. It's just so stupid. Like, I think my favorite tweet about it was something like, ah, yes, another instance of a Silicon Valley tech bro trying to replace his mother with technology. Also, the idea that you're reducing the number of interactions that you have with um, people of color. Because these are, there's a longstanding history, especially in the United States, of immigrants of various backgrounds. You know, this is their first way to actually have a business and be a integral part of their local communities, you cannot outsource this out to a box. Yeah, it was a nice story that combined hating two of the most hateable communities, tech bros and millennials. Uh, My own favorite story that got somehow two days of news on national television was Ted Cruz and porn. Uh, Can't go wrong with Ted Cruz and porn. (laughs) I I think you could definitely go wrong with Ted Cruz. Well, Ted Cruz, you could, I guess. With Ted Cruz and porn, yeah. Um, So Ted Cruz or one of his interns slash staffers who had access to his Twitter account liked a tweet featuring a video of some interesting adult situations. Uh, This was quickly noticed, pulled down, um, but not before people got the screenshots. And somehow this led a day later to Ted Cruz on Dana Bash talking about sex toys. We'll put the video link in the show notes, but if you have not seen it, um, it was it was something. And credit to Dana Bash for somehow making that pivot from sex toys to tax reform in the interview. Uh, but that was my entertaining, fun moment of the week. She was she was so good in that interview. Shout out Dana Bash. Yeah. 
All right. Girl crush of the week. Enough fun stories. We'll leave it there for this week. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. Thanks especially to Thomas Brennan and Finbar O'Reilly for coming into the studio to talk about their book, Shooting Ghosts. Thanks also to Meg Dalton and Karen K. Ho for being here with me to talk about the news of the week. Go to CJR.org to check out all the great work we've got up there, and we'll see you next week.